Let's take our Bibles this morning, and in the few minutes that remain, let's look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Father God, we thank you for this name, Jesus, name above all names. Lord, I pray today that you would help us as we spend a few minutes thinking about it and considering the implications of it. And I pray, Father, you'd fill me with your spirit as I try to preach today. Lord, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that uh, the Holy Spirit has been with me throughout my study and throughout my preparation, but I pray now that he would just take over uh, throughout this delivery and help us, help me uh, to to preach filled with the Spirit and help us all to have spirit-filled, open ears that we might hear your message for us today. Uh, Lord, we want to know about Jesus. We want to understand Jesus. We want to know who Jesus is. And uh, I pray today that as we go through this few minutes of your word, uh, you'll teach us those things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do come this morning now to the third name in our little Advent study that we're doing this year on the names of of our Savior, at least the Christmas-related names of our Savior. We've already looked at the fact that he was the Word, become flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. And we've also worshipped to know that he is Emmanuel. We looked at this same passage last week, but we concentrated on verse number 23 last week when it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so uh, we've seen the word, we've seen Emmanuel. Today, now, we come to that most beautiful of names, Jesus. Jesus. Our text today is verse 21. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Same thing we see in Luke chapter 1 and verse number 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. In verse number 24 of the passage we read this morning, Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. And in Luke chapter 2 and verse 21, when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Spurgeon said, Jesus is the way to God, therefore we preach him. He is the truth, therefore we will hear of him. He is the life, therefore shall our hearts rejoice in him. So inexpressibly fragrant is the name of Jesus that it imparts a delicious perfume to everything which comes in connection with it. Jesus. Our text is verse 21. She will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now I want to look at this in two different ways this morning. 
First of all, I want to do a little word study and just kind of tear that verse apart and look at some of the key words in there. But then I also want to state two truths that I think arise from this text that we really need to think about this morning. So first of all, let's do the little survey. Call his name Jesus. Jesus. You know, three people that we know of have that name in the New Testament. One, of course, is Christ, our Savior. Uh, In our text and in other places we see that. But there's a couple others. In uh, Colossians chapter 4, we read of Jesus who is called Justice. Paul was speaking there and he said, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So here was this person who was helping Paul. His name was Jesus, who is called Justice. And then there's a third one in Matthew chapter 27, in in at least some English Bibles it may say this, and that's Jesus Barabbas. Matthew 27, verse 15, Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished, and at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And now in the New King James that's what it says, and I think probably in most English Bibles, but there uh, there is at least one Greek text where that is Jesus Barabbas. And so that name was also a possibility. Jesus is the, is the equivalent to the Old Testament name Joshua. It literally means Jehovah saves, or even more simple, it simply means salvation. And so perhaps no other name that we have for our Savior uh, more fully captures who he is, or more fully captures why he came than Jesus. He is our Savior come to save us. Call his name Jesus. For he will save his people. Let's think about that word save. Greek word sozo, it has several meanings. It can mean to rescue from danger. My favorite picture in the Bible of salvation is when Peter walked on the water. I've shared it with you many times. Peter walked on the water and he began to sink. And he cried out and he said, Lord, save me. Where is that? I've got it somewhere in my notes here. Matthew chapter 14, verse 30. When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Rescue me. From this danger. That's one thing that that word means. Another, and probably the way that we use it the most, is to deliver into divine salvation. In other words, when we think of being saved spiritually, saved eternally, uh, that of course is one way that it is also used many times in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul said to the weak, I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Matthew eighteen eleven. for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And, and on and on. There's many verses we could look at that tell us that that's one of the meanings of the word. To deliver into divine salvation. And then there's a third meaning, which is to heal or make healthy from an illness. In, uh, where is it? Mark chapter 6 and verse 56, wherever he entered. In the villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Sozo, saved. So those three meanings, rescue from danger, to deliver to divine salvation, or to, or to heal or make healthy. Uh, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. He will rescue them from danger. He will save them eternally. He will heal them from the disease that is sin. He will save. His people. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's think about that word. 
sins. The Greek hamartia. It means literally a missing of the mark. We use Romans 3.23 all the time because it gives us pretty much that metaphor. It helps us to see that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's a picture of an archer taking a shot at a target and always missing. The arrow always falls short, always falls short. That's sin, a missing of the mark. The word refers to both our sin, singular, in other words, the inherited trait of sinfulness that we all have within us. And Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 5 when he said, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered through the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So we all have this indwelling sin. He talks about that. And it is also referring to our sins, plural. That is the specific and individual transgressions that we all commit. And we do, don't we? James chapter 5 and verse 20, let him, who, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we all have indwelling sin, singular, and we all commit sins as a result. And that, of course, is why this verse is so encouraging, isn't it? And wonderful. This name, call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Now, that's the survey. Let me share with you just a couple of truths that I want us to think about this morning that comes out of this. As we think about that truth. Number one, Jesus came to save because he's the only one who can. Jesus came to save. Because he's the only one who can. I'm not going to be long on this point. This will be a very brief point. I'm going to spend the majority of the time on point number two this morning. I don't need to dwell on this because you've heard me say this so many times from this pulpit. But there is only one way to heaven. Jesus is the only one. There is only one means of salvation. There is only one road. There is only one Savior. Only his name saves. Only his way works. Only Jesus. And some might say, well, that's arrogant. Some might say, well, that's ridiculous. And if it wasn't true, that might be the case. But what if it is true? It is true. And so therefore, it's not arrogant to say it. It's simply true. Forget every other religion. Forget every other man-made idea. Forget every other philosophy, every other theory. Forget every other person that might be preached. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul, and only Jesus can save you from your sins. That is the truth. Jesus came to save because he's the only one who can. Look at that little word, he, in there. Concentrate on that little word, he. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's something clear. There's something emphatic about that there. He will do it. He will do this thing that no other can do. He will save. And really, nothing is stated more clearly or more emphatically in Scripture than this truth, that Jesus was and is the only one. That there is salvation in none other. That's what Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says. Nor is there salvation in any other. How much clearer can it be? There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus. John chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It could not be any clearer. And so Jesus came to save because he's the only one who can. Now notice number two. Jesus came to save because we need saving. Jesus came to save because we need saving. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people.
from their sins. From their sins. Do you understand that you and I needed Satan? I know if you're a Christian here this morning, and obviously you did, and obviously you do. But I wonder sometimes how many never come to Christ because they stumble on this point. Because they can't get their mind around how terribly they need to be saved. How desperate is their fight? How incredibly lost is their soul? I have a friend that I've witnessed to a few different times. And one time in a particular moment of candor, this person said to me, The reality is I just don't feel like I need to be saved from anything. And you know, I I, I think that that describes the attitude of many. Maybe even some who come here and listen to the gospel and sit week after week after week like a stone and refuse to respond. Some think it's a nice story. It's a nice story, Pastor, but I don't get the sin part. I don't see the problem. I don't understand why it's such a big deal. And I don't feel like I need to be saved from anything. Well, let's notice what the Bible says about why it is such a big deal. We've already mentioned the fact the Bible says sin is a problem we all have. All have sinned. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Galatians chapter 3 says the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So sin is a problem we all have. And sin is deadly. Deadly. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. That which we earn from it, that which accrues to us from sin, is death. Sin is the very reason for death. We could go back and spend some time in Genesis and listen to what God said to Adam and Eve when he warned them, The day that you disobey, the day that you eat of that tree I told you not to eat of, you shall die. The very reason death exists in the world is because of sin. And sin will kill you. Ezekiel chapter 18 says, The soul that sins, it shall die. This is not just some theoretical thing. This is as personal as anything you will ever hear. Sin will kill you. And it will land you in hell. The death described in Scripture is not simply a physical death. The Bible says that to die without Christ is to suffer eternally in hell, a literal place that the Bible calls hell. Christ talked about it a lot. Matter of fact, one source I found suggested he spoke of hell 16 different times. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. See, I don't think we can get the beauty of that verse. I don't think we can understand at all the import of it. Uh, The wonderful truth that he will save his people from their sins until we get the reality of just what those sins are. And just what that that, that means that that sin is there. It's ludicrous for us to sit around singing Jesus saves all day long if we don't understand in our hearts and our minds what he saves us from. Do you understand what you need to be saved from? Sin equals death equals hell. The Bible paints a very real picture of this place called hell. And I want to share just a few thoughts about it this morning. In the hope that if we can see hell in all of its terrors, in all of its horror, then we can see the beauty that is in that verse. 
He shall save his people from their sins. The Bible tells me hell is real. It is real. There are four words in the Bible that are used to describe this place called hell. Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. All those words you may see in whatever version of the Bible you're holding this morning. They are all translated at one time or another as hell in our English Bibles. And you may see one of those, and there might be little different nuances of meaning about those different words, but forget those for right now. Whenever you see one of those words in your Bible, just think of hell, because that's what it's talking about. Hell. There's also in Revelation the lake of fire, which is another picture of this place called hell. It is real, and it is a place. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation chapter 20, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. These are places that are described where people go. It's not an idea. It's not an attitude. It's not a state of mind. It's a literal place. If heaven is a real place, then hell is also a real place. Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 28 that both the soul and the body can be cast into hell. And one man commenting on this says, This requires that hell be a literal place for a physical body, and that's the only kind of body there is, cannot be cast into anything metaphorical. It is real, and it is a place. It is described in the Bible as a place of torment. You might want to turn with me over to Luke chapter 16, because I'm going to quote from it several times now. Luke chapter 16. Hell is described as a place of torment. If you go to Luke 16, look at verse 24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. It is a place of torment. It is also a place where your mind will work perfectly well. And you will remember. I was watching one time, and those of you who have listened to me for any length of time know that I have to like Star Trek. I was watching an interview one time between Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner. This was not a Star Trek episode. It was just these two old men sitting around talking. They were philosophizing about things. Alex, you'd like that. And the question of death came up. I don't remember why, but the question of death came up. And William Shatner let slip that he was worried about death. He said, I'm a little little afraid about death. Are you? And Leonard Nimoy looked at him with this scoff, as you would expect Mr. Spock to do. And he said, no. He said, I believe death is simply a cessation of consciousness. I believe death is simply a cessation of consciousness. You know, those who are lost and loathe to consider their eternal destiny would love for that to be true. But it is not true. The fact is there is no cessation of consciousness of death. You remain conscious and will be conscious forever. Look at what it says here in Luke chapter 16. Look at verse 25. Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Look at verse 27. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. This man in hell remembered. He remembered how he had lived. He remembered how he had had opportunities and had not acted upon them. He remembered his family. He remembered his brothers. 
He remembered that they too were lost. He remembered that he cared about them. And he knew that he did not want them where he was. Hell is where all my friends are going to be, preacher. Why, they'll all be down there playing cards and having a good time. That's where I'd rather be. And that is absolutely hogwash. Listen to this man. He wasn't looking for them to come and join him. He was begging that anything and anything could be done to keep them from coming where he was. One man said there are two kinds of pain. The pain of discipline and the pain of regret. And I think the pain of regret is clearly seen here. Remembrance. There's no cessation of consciousness. You'll remember it all. Every minute, you remember every sermon that you've ever heard preached. You'll remember every opportunity that you've ever had. Every person who ever wept over your soul. You're going to remember every bit of it. Because there is no cessation of consciousness. You'll remember. Jesus said it is a place of torment. It is a place where your mind will work perfectly. And you will remember everything. He said it is a place of flames and worms and darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. All these are descriptive terms applied to hell. All that Jesus himself used to describe it. This is not a good place. This is not a place that any of us wants to go. Hell is also inescapable. Inescapable. Once there you will not get out. I know that there are false teachers who teach things like purgatory. But that's exactly what they are, false teachers. There's no such thing as purgatory. If you can find a word about purgatory in my Bible, I will eat this Bible. It is not in there. There is no such thing. No, the Bible tells me, as a matter of fact, right here in Luke 16 again. Look at verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. There's no way out once you're in there. The Mormons practice a thing called uh, baptism for the dead. Baptism by proxy. So you can die outside of the faith, and then some good Mormon will be baptized in your name, and you'll be in. No, no. There's no such thing. Hell is inescapable. Once you were there, you were there. And hell is forever. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 24, They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, their fire is not quenched, they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, Matthew chapter 25. Jesus in Mark chapter 9 just went on a tear about hell. He just talked about it over and over again in Mark chapter 9. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation chapter 14, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Not enough to just say forever. We have to pile words on top of words forever and ever. I don't want to be tedious this morning, but I do want to be clear. Because we need to understand this. There's not enough discussion about this anymore. You need to know it to be true. You need to believe it. Over and over and over and over and over again, the Bible warns us about the reality of hell. Psalm chapter 9, the wicked should be turned into hell. 
and all the nations that forget God. Matthew chapter 10, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Jesus said to the Pharisees. Do you see it? Do you see it? If you have not consciously decided to trust Christ, then all of these verses describe you, your destiny, your eternity. And since God could call your name at any minute. You could be there before I finish this sentence. Jonathan Edwards said, Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight. And these places are not seen. In other words, he was saying, you could fall through at any moment. Any moment. Richard Baxter said, we are like runners in a race. And heaven or hell will be our end. And therefore, woe to us if by looking aside or turning back or stopping or trifling about these matters or burdening ourselves with worldly trash, we should lose the race and lose our souls. My guess is that you're pretty uncomfortable with this sermon this morning. My guess is, by the silence in the room, that that's the case. And some people probably think me harsh or mean-spirited for talking about hell in a Christmas sermon. doesn't exactly seem like the topic you would expect. One man said, if preachers would only lighten and shoot no thunderbolts, even a Herod himself would hear them gladly. But when their Herodias is meddled with, they cannot bear it. And I know that we'd much rather not hear about sin and not hear about need. But what kind of pastor would I be if I did not tell you the truth? Paul said, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? One man said, if a wicked man seems to have peace at death, it's not from the knowledge of his happiness, but from the ignorance of his danger. And I would not have you ignorant of your danger, my friend, if you have not been converted, if you have not been born again. You are in danger. Real danger. Phil Robertson, that great theologian, said, if you give them the bad news, They'll start kicking and screaming. But you love them more than you fear them, so you tell them. And I do love you. Way too much to shy from telling you the truth about sin and about hell. I read a book this past year by John Piper. It's called Brethren. We are not professionals. It's a good book. A good book for all those who are elders to read especially. He said this. He said, do we believe in our hearts what we espouse with our lips? I know for myself that in order to be a true shepherd and not a hireling, in order to grieve over the straying lambs, and in order to summon with tears the wild goats, I must believe in my heart certain terrible and wonderful things. If I am to love with the meek, humble, tender, self-effacing heart of Christ, I must feel the awful and glorious truths of Scripture. Specifically, I must feel the truth of hell, that it exists and is terrible and horrible beyond imaginings forever and ever. Matthew 25 says these will go away into eternal punishment. And even if I try to make the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20 or the fiery furnace in Matthew chapter 13 a symbol, I am confronted with the terrifying thought that symbols are not overstatements, but understatements of reality. 
Jesus did not choose these pictures to tell us that hell is easier than burning. Do you see why Matthew 121 is such a wonderful verse? Do you see why the name of Jesus is so wonderful? Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That name is wonderful because it tells us he came to save us from all of this. We need not fear sin. We need not fear death. We need not fear hell because Jesus came to save us from all of it. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And when he saves from their sins, he saves from that which sin brings, death and hell. John Stott said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. And the same is true of the manger. same is true of the birth. We cannot fully comprehend or appreciate or understand what it means that Jesus came that first Christmas to save us from our sins if we don't first understand just what those sins are and what those sins lead to. That apart from Jesus, we are lost forever, eternally. Would you think about these things? Would you think about these things? Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. One door, and only one. And yet its sides are two. The inside, the outside. On which side are you?